Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're very happy to bring you the podcast with no adverts and no sponsorship. If you're enjoying our podcast and want to support analysis and commentary in the Middle East and North Africa that is truly independent, please consider a donation. You can find details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. My guest today is Giorgio Caviero. Giorgio is the founder and CEO of Gulf State Analytics, based in Washington. An expert on MENA affairs, a writer and analyst, he appears frequently on Al Jazeera, TRT World, and BBC Persian. In addition to writing for Gulf State Analytics, he's a regular contributor to several outlets, including Gulf International Forum, The New Arab, and Amouage Media. Our conversation today focuses on China's growing influence in the Gulf. Giorgio, delighted to have you back on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. The Chinese President Xi Jinping has just concluded a visit to Saudi Arabia. That was a great success, I think we can say, for both sides. He was greeted by aerobatic fighter jets, a purple carpet, cannons fired. Quite a contrast uh, to the greeting that Joe Biden got just a couple of months ago. Can you give us a snapshot of what this visit has accomplished for both sides? Well, you know, for Saudi Arabia and China, their bilateral relationship has been growing in terms of its importance with both sides. Seeing this partnership is increasingly important with every year that passes. In a period in which the world is becoming increasingly multipolar, the relationship that Riyadh has with Beijing is very important to the ways in which the kingdom is conducting its foreign policy, uh, especially against the backdrop of many tensions between the United States and Saudi Arabia, with the United States being the kingdom's traditional security guarantor for many decades. Uh, this was the Chinese leader's first visit to Saudi Arabia since 2016. I think this really is business as usual. The Saudis and the Chinese cooperate in many, many ways. Uh, the Saudis very much need uh, Chinese money. The Chinese very much need Saudi oil. At the same time, there's cooperation in other areas, investment, Saudi Vision 2030. They also have um, ties that do have some defense and security dimensions to them, although this is mostly a relationship that is oriented around economics. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia right now is going through a very significant economic transformation with Vision 2030, which is the uh, Saudi agenda toward diversifying the kingdom's economy away from oil. And also at the same time, there's China's Belt and Road Initiative, which Saudi Arabia has an important part of. And there are a lot of synergies between Vision 2030 and the Belt and Road Initiative, which do a lot to help us understand the reasons why on both uh, Riyadh and Beijing's side, there's so much value that's placed on uh, this bilateral relationship. And when you look at the relationship between the two of them, because that's important too, isn't it? 
how do you see that? How do they do they because they share the same sort of authoritarian ideology? But how do you think they get along? Well, it's a very good question you raise. In many ways, I think the Saudi leadership gets along better with China's leadership than with the leadership in the United States or other Western countries. Obviously, on numerous occasions, Western officials have criticized the Saudi government for its record on human rights. And this is, from the Saudi government's perspective, a form of meddling in Saudi Arabia's domestic affairs. It's not welcome. The Saudi leadership gets very angry when American, British, or European officials raise these types of issues. The Chinese leadership, as you know, doesn't criticize uh, foreign countries on the human rights front. China has a non-interference doctrine in its foreign policy. This is something that sits very well uh, with officials in Riyadh. They, like many aspects of the Chinese approach to doing business in the Middle East, and again, one of these main reasons has to do with the fact that the uh, leadership in China does not criticize Arab countries or really any country at all for uh, being undemocratic, being authoritarian, or violating human rights of its citizens. This is a dynamic in the Saudi-Chinese relationship that probably bodes very well uh, for the partnership, certainly on a state-to-state -state level. And this gives China certainly an advantage uh, when it comes to its dealings with Saudi Arabia that Western countries do not have. China has also reached out to the, the GCC in a significant way at what's been called the Riyadh Summit for Cooperation and Development between the GCC and the Republic of China. What's interesting about the joint statement that came out is how heavily Iran was targeted. Just to mention a couple of points, Tehran was condemned for supporting terrorism to destabilize the region, including backing the Houthis in Yemen. And the communique supported the UAE claim to three islands in the Gulf that are currently held by Iran. Were you surprised at all at the strength of the language that was aimed at Iran? Well, there are many analysts who contend that China has now embraced a different approach to the Gulf region. To put this into a bit of context, for many years, Beijing uh, had a foreign policy in the Gulf that was based on balance, and China would avoid getting too close to Iran at the expense of GCC states or vice versa. And there are some analysts who contend that this is something of the past and that China is now shifting into much closer alignment with GCC countries against Iran. My personal view is that it's a little bit premature and a little bit bold to make those kinds of claims right now. I think we need to assess the position that China has in the Gulf a little bit more carefully. First of all, the statement about the islands, the communique did not 
mean that China's position is that the UAE has sovereignty over these islands. The Chinese position is that there should be a settlement of this territorial dispute between the Emiratis and Iranians. Now, of course, from Iran's perspective, that is outrageous. As Tehran sees it, these islands are 100% Iranian, and any suggestion that they might not be is offensive to the Iranians. They see these islands as a part of Iran's territorial integrity. So um, at the same time, we should keep in mind that China is not going to want to isolate Iran. And if people are reaching the conclusion that China now is determined to marginalize or isolate Iran, I would disagree with that assessment. However, there is no doubt about the fact that from an economic standpoint, from other standpoints, China gets more out of its relationships with GCC countries than it does with Iran. And with the JCPOA talks essentially collapsed at this moment, I mean, the prospects for the JCPOA being revived are very, very dim. Uh, no one who is realistic uh, is optimistic about the 2015 nuclear accord being reconstituted. So, you know, China is expecting Iran to be a country that remains heavily sanctioned. That obviously does not mean that there won't be significant trade between China and Iran. But it is to say, though, that these sanctions do impact the ways in which Beijing looks at its potential uh, to gain from economic investment and trade links with Iran. At the same time, as I said, there's a lot more that China can gain from its relationships with the GCC countries compared to Iran right now. And I think it's probably the case that the communique reflects the reality of Beijing having this assessment. But again, I would stress, though, that the overall balance that China has in the Gulf is probably not one that Beijing is walking away from. I do not think that Beijing is going to completely burn bridges with Tehran. Obviously, Iran has an important role to play in the Belt and Road Initiative. And the Chinese, I don't think, are looking to seriously aggravate or isolate Iran at this stage. Now, another point in the communique was a criticism, albeit somewhat muted, of Russia for conducting a war that's damaged global food and energy supplies. Uh, I'm wondering, are we seeing something of a retrenchment here? I ask because the Russians are relying on Iranian weaponry in Ukraine, including drones. The GCC, on the other hand, has been rather sitting on the fence vis-a-vis uh, -vis Putin's war. Are the Gulf states, do you think, uh, getting off that fence now? I'm not sure that I would agree with that assessment. I think that as the Ukraine war is now almost 10 months old, the GCC states are probably not on the verge of any drastic shifts. 
in their uh, positions. To be clear, uh, really from the beginning of this conflict, going back to a UN General Assembly resolution in early March, the GCC states have never had a problem condemning the war that Russia waged against Ukraine. And there have been numerous UN General Assembly resolutions in which the GCC countries have voted in alignment with the West against Moscow. However, when it comes to questions about actions the GCC states might take against Russia, such as possibly giving arms to Ukraine or implementing sanctions on Russia, the GCC states are avoiding those kinds of moves. The Gulf Arab perspective is that the crisis in Ukraine is very much a European conflict and that they are not required to take a side. They are preparing for a more multipolar world in which Russia is one of the poles in this uh, geopolitical order, and they have deepened their cooperation with Moscow in many areas, whether we're talking about energy, uh, counterterrorism, investment, trade, tourism, so on and so forth. They see this cooperation with Russia as being very important and they don't want to burn their bridges with the Kremlin over the situation in Ukraine. I think that the GCC countries are unlikely to fundamentally shift their positions on this conflict or fundamentally change their relationships with Russia. I think sort of the balancing act between East and West is set to continue. However, there's one caveat. In the extreme scenario that Russia would use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, I do think that would cause GCC states to change their relationships with Putin's government. But without that extreme scenario unfolding, I don't see GCC countries taking any concrete steps to isolate, squeeze, or single out the Russians over the situation in Ukraine. Yeah, that um, the policy of pragmatism that you've discussed with the vis-a-vis the Chinese, we're seeing it emerging very much now with the GCC in that war. Um, I recall a slogan of Mao's that he... Uh, laid down during the long march, and it's this, when the enemy attacks, we retreat. When the enemy retreats, we attack. Is America in retreat in the Gulf? Because certainly on the economic and diplomatic front, China would appear to be attacking. I don't think it's correct to say that the U.S. is withdrawing from the Middle East or from the Gulf sub-region. When you look at the American military presence in GCC countries, it's very evident that the U.S. remains extremely involved uh, in the GCC. There's no doubt that the United States remains the security guarantor for all six GCC states. There's no indication that the Chinese, the Russians, or anyone else in the world could or would replace the U.S. in this role at least anytime soon. Uh, sure, way down the line, maybe decades down the road, there could be a future in which there are Chinese military bases all 
over the Arabian Peninsula. And every time there's a security crisis on the peninsula, Gulf Arab officials call Beijing for help. But we're long way. That's a long ways away. Um, I think it's pretty clear that for the foreseeable future, it's the United States that's going to be the security guarantor for the Gulf Arab states. And I think um, when it comes to the security dimensions of the Saudi relationship with China, we should be careful uh, when analyzing those. So far, it seems to me that the kinds of weapons that the Chinese are selling to Riyadh, such as armed drone, armed drones, are ones that the U.S. has not been willing to sell to Saudi Arabia. And the ways in which China is helping Saudi Arabia uh, with its military development is very much about these kind of niche areas. And as I said at the beginning of this program, the main dynamics in China and Saudi Arabia's partnership are economic and the security dimensions are much less important than the economic ones. I don't see China posing a serious challenge to the uh, role that the U.S. plays when it comes to the defense of Saudi Arabia and the Saudi state's territorial integrity. You know, a number of years have passed since the Kuwait crisis of 1990-1991, but I, th I think when you talk to Saudis today, I mean, they, they do remember that whole episode when it was the U.S. military that defended the territorial integrity of the Saudi state. And I think there are very few people in Saudi Arabia who uh, would tell you with a straight face that they think that China is on the verge of, of either being able or being willing to play that kind of role. Uh, let's also uh, remember uh, back in January of this year when the Houthis carried out those missile and drone attacks against Abu Dhabi. It was the Emirati officials. They didn't make a phone call to Beijing. They didn't call Moscow. They counted on the United States for uh, assistance during that crisis. So for all the tensions between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and for all the um you know, all the talk about the lavish reception that the Chinese leader had in Riyadh earlier this month, we should definitely keep in mind that China is not on the verge of replacing the U.S. as the kingdom's security guarantor. Yeah, I um, agree with you on that, uh, Giorgio. Uh, certainly not likely to happen in the short term, if indeed ever. But on the other hand, when you look at the anger among some Democrats in Washington towards the Saudis, towards the uh, Emiratis. I'm thinking of uh, Tom Malinowski, who has proposed legislation that would pull troops and missile defense system out of both the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And uh, along with that, a letter that referred to the Gulf countries as client states. I mean, that causes a lot of anger. Uh, and there's anger on both sides. How will the Chinese use that? Will they weaponize it to uh, advance their economic interests? That's a great question. You know, from the Saudi perspective, I think there 
is a fair amount of uncertainty when it comes to the political environment here in Washington. We have presidential elections every four years, and there are changes in U.S. foreign policy from one administration to the other. You have um, some segments of the Democratic Party that are becoming increasingly anti-Saudi. You know, I mean, take a listen to some of the stuff Bernie Sanders, for example, has to say about Saudi Arabia. I mean, certainly officials in Riyadh don't like hearing any of that. And then contrast that to the uh, political environment in Beijing, where there's much more consistency and the Saudis are able to safely bet that in, you know, five years, 10 years from now, uh, there's not going to be new leadership in China that takes a, a fundamentally different uh, approach or have different rhetoric towards Saudi Arabia. So they see Chinese system being much more consistent. And that's something that they find appealing. The volatility of U.S. politics does have an impact on the way the Saudis and others in the GCC view their relationship with America. Now, having said all of that, the point I made previously is still very relevant for all the headaches, all the difficulties, and all the anger that is in play in U.S.-Saudi relations. Officials in Riyadh know that there's no country that's on the verge of replacing the U.S. as uh, the kingdom's security guarantor or the security guarantor for any of the other GCC states. So it creates a little bit of a complicated set of dynamics. Now, we've touched on this already, this synergy, I'd call it, between the Chinese and Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis -vis human rights, i.e. there are no human rights other than what the uh, authoritarian leadership decides are human rights. And uh, of course, the, the the example in China of the um, destruction, really, of the Uyghur population. And of course, in Saudi Arabia, you had 81 people executed uh, in one day this year. You have these enormously long sentences that are being uh, applied to uh, people who simply criticized, in what we would say are very mild terms, the rule uh, of uh, Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, people tell me Saudis talk about a, a reign of terror. They don't say it publicly, but they say it quietly and in, and in fear. That human rights issue, I mean, that's a battle that's being lost, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, the human rights situation in Xinjiang is something we, we should bring up here. The fact that it's really not an issue in the uh, relationship between the Saudi and Chinese governments is significant. Uh, since the mid-1980s, the king of Saudi Arabia has officially been the custodian of the two holy mosques. Much of the legitimacy of the Al Saud family in Saudi Arabia uh, is, is rooted in religion, in, in Islam. And it's the tradition that the Saudi leadership stands in defense of pan-Islamic causes around the world. And therefore, the total lack of criticism on the part of the Saudi government toward China for carrying out what a handful of Western countries have called a genocide against China's Muslim minority is pretty significant. But it brings us to this important 
point you raise, which is about synergies between different authoritarian countries. And also it touches upon this point I made earlier about the non-interference doctrine in Chinese foreign policy, which Saudi Arabia is clearly reciprocating here. The Saudis, the Saudi leadership doesn't want to set a precedent where countries are criticized for their human rights abuses at home. The Saudi government doesn't want to see China get criticized for violating the human rights of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang for fear that this will set more precedent for criticizing other countries around the world. And obviously that would not end necessarily so well for Saudi Arabia. So there is a shared interest in creating a world whereby governments can basically do what they want to their citizens at home and not even get criticized for it. So while I think there are probably many Saudis, you know, who are conservative Muslims who read about human rights abuses in Xinjiang and they find it terrifying, the Saudi government has no interest in criticizing China on this front. And at the same time, the Saudis understand that China reacts to criticism and the countries around the world whose governments do not criticize China on human rights issues receive better treatment from Beijing. And given the extent to which China is so important to the future of Saudi Arabia's foreign policy in a more multipolar world, given the extent to which China is so important to Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 agenda, I think the view from the Saudi government is also that China is simply too important uh, for us to risk anything with them over the Xinjiang file. And I think this is where we stand right now. And it's, it's very much appreciated in Beijing that Saudi Arabia does not use its influence in the Arab and Islamic world to raise this issue or to shine a light on human rights abuses in Xinjiang. This is a dynamic that serves to strengthen the relationship between the Saudi and Chinese governments. Now we're just on the cusp of a of a new year, 2023. So I'm going to ask you, uh, Jojo, looking ahead to 2023, how do you see this uh, China GCC relationship developing? Uh, is it going to move along these very promising economic fronts, and and as both diplomatic fronts, do you see that uh, that relationship prospering and growing ever stronger? Well, when you you Look at long-term trends. It's very clear that, you know, there was a geoeconomic shift, a geoeconomic pivot that Gulf Arab states made to China that began many years ago. And that is definitely set to remain in motion. China are going to remain very dependent on oil from Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries. They need to be able to count on the GCC states when it comes to uh, supplying oil. And obviously the Belt and Road Initiative is so important to Chinese interests. 
and the Middle East, uh, given where it sits geographically between China and Europe, is going to be a very important region uh, when it comes to the Belt and Road Initiative and, and China's foreign policy. I have a difficult time seeing uh, these relationships between China and GCC states uh, not becoming more important in the future. From the perspective of GCC states, China is just simply too important to not um, invest in. And I think it's going to be interesting, however, to see how China deals with the geopolitical environment in this region as Beijing becomes more involved. We were talking earlier about how some tensions between Iran and certain GCC states create dilemmas for Beijing as the Chinese leadership is trying to navigate uh, this part of the Middle East. I think these will pose some serious challenges to China. I think as China wants to be seen as kind of a balancing uh, or wants to be seen as a player with a balanced foreign policy, it might not necessarily be easy for China to always strike this balance. Arguably, the communique earlier this month uh, threw the balance a little bit out of whack. We'll have to sort of see what comes next in 2023 for the China-Iran relationship. Also, another thing we'll have to keep an eye on is the extent to which the United States puts pressure on GCC states to cool ties with China. I am not necessarily sure there's so much that Washington can do to achieve this outcome. But in a period of time in which the U.S. leadership is so focused on great power competition, I'm sure this is something that the Biden administration and probably the administration that comes next will put a lot of energy into. Mm -hmm. China and the GCC uh, are watching brief for 2023. Jojo, thanks so much, and I wish you the, the best of the holiday season. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure being on your show. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Giorgio Caffiero. Giorgio is the founder and CEO of Gulf State Analytics, based in Washington. Since we launched our podcasts in 2020, they've been listened to more than 100,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. We're happy to bring the podcast with no ads and no sponsorship. And if you're enjoying our podcasts and want to support analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa that is truly independent, please do consider a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law editor of the Herb Digest, essential reading from independent sources.